Today we are continuing our series that we've been calling Foundations of Prayer. We are taking the winter months to kind of come back to basics because for everybody who calls themselves a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus, if you are looking for how to be able to grow in your walk with Jesus, I think that the the key thing that Jesus gives us to know God better is the discipline of prayer. And so we've been um, setting aside each week to kind of explore different aspects of prayer. And hopefully you've been able to take some of the things that we've talked about and sort of practice them on your own and and maybe explore new aspects of prayer. Um, A few years ago, back in 2017, I, I was going through a particularly challenging season in my life where it felt like kind of everything that I was facing came at me with a little bit of a headwind. You know, you, you ever have those those seasons like in your life where just work is hard, you know, marriage wasn't easy, my house seemed like it needed another repair every other week and just watching my bank account go down and down and down. My, my firstborn son, he was constantly sick, our finances were thin, relationships were really strained and it just felt relentless. And then there was this traumatic experience that my wife and I had where our son ended up in Randall's Children's Hospital for um, six nights uh, and was diagnosed with um, sort of a chronic disease that was, gonna, that was projected to be um, something that he was going to struggle with for the rest of his life. And we were dealing with all of that. We were just sort of feeling like we were kind of in the wash, you know, just like couldn't tell which way was up and which way was down. And so after months of grinding it out, I felt like it was probably time for me to go see a counselor for the first time. Now, Pastoring 101, uh, if you meet with somebody who says that they're struggling with something, the first thing you ask them is how their devotional life is going. The second thing you tell them to do is go see a counselor. Those are like the two things that they give you to do if you're a pastor. And I had never done one of those things. I had never seen a counselor before. But I felt like I was a pretty introspective person, and I figured that it was going to take a while for this guy to be able to notice anything about me that I didn't already know about myself. But then in the first session, after just kind of sharing a little bit about why I was there, what was going on in my life, as we were winding down, he gently pointed out the number of times I used this phrase. I kept saying the phrase, I feel like I should, over and over and over again. And he said, do you know how much you say the word should? And I sat there quietly, and he sat there quietly, and he just looked at me for a little while, and then time was up, and I had to leave. (laughs) And so while there was a lot of difficulty that I was wading through in that season of my life, much of the reason for my soul-level exhaustion was because I was operating from a should spirit. I wasn't experiencing God as living water. I was coming to him out of obligation, like I just have to keep doing this, daily praying because I felt like I should. And at the end of that session, I went for a long walk through Officer's Row in the late summer afternoon, and I was processing what was just revealed in that that first hour, and I felt the gentle voice of the Father saying to me, Marshall, I call you my friend. See, the vision of the Christian life is not about how much you can do for God, or even how good you can be for God. The vision of the Christian life is all about walking with God in friendship. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this about a man named Enoch. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. 
He could not be found because God has taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Genesis 5 is like the only passage in the Bible that really unpacks Enoch's life. It's just a couple of verses. And it describes the life of Enoch as he was one who walked with God. The image that we get from Enoch is a life of walking with God in relationship, in a friendship. It's a picture of sharing his day-to-day with the Father. And over the course of his life, becoming so close to God in relationship that finally God just took him. Like, people talk all the time about how we, we, want, we hope that someday when we die, it'll be sort of peaceful in our sleep uh, next to um, our, our partner, and that they'll die at the same time, too, and that it'll all just be perfect. But I want to contend that the Bible actually gives us something even better than that. Being so close to God that he finally looks down at you and he says, just come on up. Just come on up here. Come on. It's over and over again we see in the Gospels the aim of the Christian life is not just personal holiness, though of course that matters, or even spiritual fruitfulness, you know, producing, producing what Jesus calls fruit, though that also matters. No, Jesus tells us that the beginning and the end of the Christian life is all about a relationship with the Father. And so we're going to jump through a few passages real quick. If you have a paper Bible, let's see how fast you can flip through pages. In John chapter 17, Jesus actually gives us his definition for what eternal life looks like. This thing that all of us were created with a deep inner longing for. And he describes it like this in verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, when Jesus is asked to define what eternal life is, he doesn't describe a mansion in the sky. He doesn't even describe sort of the quantity of life, that it just goes on and on forever. No, Jesus, according to Jesus, eternal life begins here and now as a relationship with God. He describes eternal life that we will live in forever as knowing God. And then the night before Jesus uh, selected his 12 disciples, the, the, the young men who would be his apprentices, he spent time with the Father in prayer. And then he, he, when he calls his disciples, he actually describes what it is that this life of discipleship was going to look like. In Mark chapter 3, we read, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. And that, they, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You see, when we think about these disciples that Jesus picked, who would become apostles, who would become the first leaders of the church, those who would spark a movement that would spread across the world, that would affect history for thousands of years afterward, that would usher in what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. When he's picking those guys and he's deciding what what the program is going to be to train them up to be able to change the course of history, the first thing that he said that they're going to do is be with him. He said, before I give you a program teaching you how to preach, how to deliver somebody from demons, how to do the five-step prayer model and see people healed, before I do any of those things, I just want you to be with me and that everything else will flow from that. You see, for many of us, if we're honest, the being with God part, the prayer stuff that we have been talking about, can easily fall into the should category. Like it's another thing that we know we should do, that it would be good for us. 
but it's hard to find the motivation to actually set aside the time to do it. Or when we do it, we find it hard and boring. You see, a lot of these disciplines, particularly prayer, fasting, things like that, are the kind of things that we would like to have done (laughs) rather than the things we would like to do. It's the way that I feel about running a marathon. I would love to have run a marathon. (laughs) I have zero interest in running a marathon. How does our relationship with God then move out of the category of should and into the category of friendship that Jesus describes? How do we describe, how do we, sorry, how do we experience prayer as a source for life rather than seeing it as just another obligation that drains us of our life? What would it actually look like to walk with God throughout our day and to experience him not just as a deity, not just as a a, a, a self-help coach, but to experience him as our friend. You see, the vision for our life really is an intimate relationship with the Father, and the practice that brings us into that vision is what the Bible calls abiding. The go-to passage that shows this reality is found in John chapter 15, a very familiar passage to us. We've been coming back to it over and over again. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he has his best friends in a room and they're sharing a meal and he's giving sort of a last discourse of everything that they were gonna need to know to be able to be faithful in the time coming, both when he went to the cross and died and then when he, was, when he ascended to heaven and was no longer here. Here's what you need to know as you go and you start this mission movement and you birth the church. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandment, commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and, re- and I remain in his love. <coughs> I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Intimacy with God, friendship with God, it flows directly from a life of abiding with him. You see, this passage, it actually teaches us that your life, that each one of us will draw from a source. And the fruit that our lives produce reflects the source that we are drawing from. And so it's crucial that we are not rooted or abiding in the wrong things. And I think, this is my conjecture here, I think that it's possible now more than any other time in history that you can subtly deceive yourself into thinking that you're abiding in God while actually abiding in a spiritual or religious substitute. 
And these substitutes can temporarily give you the spiritual hit of fervor or encouragement in a difficult time while still failing to nourish your soul. You think that you're drawing from what you need, but actually you end up empty on the other side. It is easier now than ever to have a curated spiritual experience that is mediated by Christian celebrities where you vicariously feel connected to God through another person's walk with the Lord. Does that make sense? It is really, really easy to feel like you're drawing from somebody else. You can feed yourself off someone else's secondhand abiding And when I give these examples, it's important that you hear me clearly. I am not saying that any of these things are bad. I think that these things are great. But if we are not careful, they can be a shallow substitute for the real personal friendship with God that each of us was designed to experience. It is easier to ease the longing of our heart by doing something for God rather than being with God. Even participating in church events, going to a small group, uh, going to worship nights or encounter nights and having this sort of rah-rah experience, singing to the Lord, all the while not actually opening up your heart to commune with God for yourself. It's easy to listen to a soaring new worship album, singing aloud, belting it out in the car on your way to work, than it is to sit in quiet and talk with God with your own words. It is easier to absorb spiritual wisdom and insight by listening to podcasts of your favorite preachers or maybe some of your Instagram church celebrities rather than being nourished by God's word day after day for yourself. For some people, it's even easier to open up about your struggles in the context of a small group or some close friends and to receive the comfort that comes from really like people who really care about you, wanting to pray for you and love you, all the while failing to actually take your struggles to God and receive from him directly. There are so many faux Christian vines that we can abide in that give us the feeling like we're connected to God while keeping him at arm's length. We can end up abiding in a Christian system, in a culture, a celebrity, a routine, a legalistic practice, all while failing to abide in God. And when we're honest, God can start to feel a little bit more like a friend of a friend, you know, like an acquaintance that somebody brings along to the party. Or he can start to feel like your best friend from college who you still keep up with and follow on social media. You see everything that's happening in their lives, all the highlights, maybe a phone call here and there for a quick catch-up, but ha- doesn't have any actual involvement in your, in your day-to-day life in a meaningful way. The intimacy with God that we all long for, it flows from a personal abiding relationship with him. And prayer is the primary practice God has given us to abide with him. When we learn to abide in God, as Jesus invites us to do, we discover that everything that we felt like we should do to have a fulfilled life actually naturally flows. When we draw from God as our source by being with him, we discover that he is the one who is able to then change us to be like him, which is what we call formation, or to give us the power that we need to do the stuff that he did when he was on the earth and that he calls the church to do, what we call mission. You see, rather than gritting our teeth and trying to be better, be formed, be a better Christian, 
or gritting our teeth and saying, I need to do more for Jesus, accomplish his mission, fulfill what he has given me to do, Jesus says, I've only asked you to do one thing, and that's just to abide with me. And trust me that if you abide with me, that stuff is going to flow from your life. Everything that we need for the Christian life flows from a friendship with God. Now, if in our lives, we are constantly bombarded with things that would pull us away from this abiding walk with God. And, and this week, as I was praying and I was kind of just opening my heart to the Lord um, and asking him, you know, to, to confront stuff in my own life, I felt like he was highlighting a few things for me that I think is also just really widely applicable to everyone. Of, so two enemies to our intimacy, intimacy with God. And, to, and then he also gave me a key practice for abiding that combats these two enemies. So here's my two enemies uh, and a practice to combat those enemies. The first enemy to our intimacy with God is sin. Duh. <laughs> like that's, that's what you pay me for. <laughs> these brilliant insights that I, that I have. This is the obvious. Our sin keeps us at a distance from God. Our disobedience is a hindrance from feeling close and connected to the Father. And while that may seem really, really obvious, the truth is that if you have been following Jesus for any length of time, there have been some victories, some obvious sins that you have, that you have seen Jesus, you know, sort of like crucify and take out of your life and that you experience freedom from. And then if we're honest with ourselves, there are a number of sins that each one of us has just sort of declared a truce with. Like, you know what? As long as you don't bother me too much, I'm not going to bother you too much. I'm just going to live with this thing and put up with it. And the thing is, when we give that space to that sin, it ends up dulling our hearts and keeping us at a distance in our relationship with God. Now, think back to Genesis chapter 3. After our first parents sinned against God, they immediately hid from him. This close relationship sudden, like, immediately became distant. And they stitched fig leaves to hide their nakedness and their shame. What was at once an unhindered relationship where there was zero hiddenness was suddenly broken by sin and shame. Our sin keeps us from walking with God in friendship. It creates a separation. Now the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus took upon himself all of the consequences and effects of our sin when he went to the cross. That Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, bearing the penalty, bearing the consequences, bearing the power and the destructive power of our sin in his body, and he's hanging there, he literally cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time that the second person in the Trinity experienced this fracturing away from the Father. Jesus experienced a separation as he bore our sin. But because, because he did that for us, because he bore our sin on the cross, the Bible teaches that now we who were once separate, who could not be in the presence of God, who had no business being near God, have actually been reconciled to the Father. That through Jesus' forsakenness, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And where there was once separation and shame, there is now again communion and relationship, even friendship. But the fact is that when we live with ongoing, unrepentant sin in our hearts, we become distant. It's not that God casts us out or removes himself from us. It's that we just drift. And that, my friends, 
in the Christian life is the thing that we have to watch out for the most. The drift of sin. When we indulge in the things of this world, it keeps us from being able to enjoy the presence of God that we were created for. Because we are looking for satisfaction in something else and we become numb to the presence of God. Sin hinders intimacy. We cannot abide in God and continue to walk in our sin. And the second, this is super quick, super simple, is just distraction. The second enemy is distraction. We are numbed by countless distractions on every side. And some of those distractions are like good and right, and I get it, and like that's just, it might be a season of life where you just don't have the ability to focus on God in the way that you used to, where you don't have the margin to be able to obey God sort of and live radically like you used to. That, that there's that. And then, of course, there's the obvious, like empty things that really numb us and steal our gaze away from God and dull, the, dull our souls until they wither and our, and, and, um, our spiritual capacity is just diminished. Things like social media. <laughs> like, is there anything good about social media? I don't know. Probably not. Streaming services, 24-7 cable news, sports. There's like a thing next Sunday, I think, but none of us care because we're all going to be in church worshiping Jesus. Podcasts, YouTube rabbit holes, a hundred things like this. They create a cacophony of noise that just like is constantly agitating our soul and drowns out the voice of God and pulls our hearts anywhere but him. So I think that, that, that a lot of the stuff that we just swim in whether it's our sin, whether it's distraction, it's just designed to pull us away from, from intimacy with God. And while you might assume that the practice uh, that we are given to fight back against sin's power to separate us from God is things like confession or repentance or accountability from a small group or something, I believe that there's an even more important practice for the Christian, which is enjoying God. We fight back against the power of sin to create distance by abiding in joy, by feasting on the goodness of God. This is what we were created for. And this is what the Bible teaches from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the people of God were warned that if they didn't properly delight themselves in God, that he was going to actually bring judgment on them. In Psalm 37, David calls God's people to delight themselves in the Lord, and the byproduct of that would be that they would experience the desires of their heart. In Psalm 16, David, uh, uh, David calls God's people to, to delight themselves in God, and in so doing, they would receive... Or sorry, sorry. in Psalm 16, David says that God's presence is where we find fullness of joy and pleasure at his right hand forever. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul commands the church and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And they're like, when? And he said, Rejoice! I said, Rejoice! Again, 1 Peter 1, Peter calls us to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The responsibility of the Christian is to live into the delights, the pleasures, the joy of God. And of course, Jesus says the same thing in the passage that we're in this morning. In John chapter 15, he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He says, when you delight yourself in God, when you experience friendship with the Father, when he is your source, my joy is in you and your joy will be lacking nothing. It'll be full 
and complete. Abiding in God is meant to lead us into joy. It's meant to lead us out of patterns of looking for satisfaction in other things. You see, things like confession and repentance are crucial because they, in so doing, we are acknowledging the wrong that we do and we are recognizing them for being the hollow substitutes that they are. But enjoying God is what turns us from sin and to him. Sam Storms, one of my favorite writers, writes this. The diabolical strategy of the enemy is to seduce us into believing that the world and the flesh and the sinful self-indulgence could do for our weary and broken hearts what God could not. This is the battle that we face each day. We awaken to a world at war for the allegiance of our minds and the affections of our souls. The winner will be whoever can persuade us that he will bring greatest and most soul-satisfying joy. And that is why we must labor and pray and strive so passionately and sacrificially for joy in Jesus. He goes on, Hence, the key to living a successful, sin-killing life doesn't come primarily from trying harder, but from enjoying more. This doesn't mean you can be a successful Christian without trying. It simply means that enjoyment empowers effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity. That's good. You see, when Jesus calls us to be holy, when he calls us to crucify our flesh, when he calls us to lay down our rights, when he calls us to all the things that, that our sort of natural minds consider impossible, even unappealing, He says, you can't do it on your own, but in doing this, you will discover a joy that you never knew was possible. But the question is how? How do we enjoy God? How do we learn to delight ourselves in him as an act of abiding? Sam Storms, again, he goes on to give four primary ways. The first is intellectual fascination. That we use our minds to know God. We explore theology and philosophy. We don't shrink back from the life of the mind. We want to know him. We want to study him. We want to explore his ways. We want to understand his character. We want to know him personally as he is revealed in his word. So it is critical that as Christians, we do not leave our brains at the door. We actually engage in study and discussion, dare I say heated discussion at times, so that we might know God. And the intellectual pursuit of God, it actually leads us into a sort of worshipful experience of joy that can be characterized as deeper fascination. Like, man, God is amazing. And every time that your study leads you into saying, wow, God is amazing, that is an act of enjoyment. That was one of the things that when I first joined this church, I actually loved most. You see, I grew up in a a tradition that, that was primarily driven by emotion. And then I ping-ponged into a tradition that was primary driven by the intellect. And then I ping-ponged back into a tradition that was primary driven by power and experience and emotion. And then again, the intellect. I went back and forth and back and forth until I reached the vineyard, home, welcome, where we, we, we experience this thing, where we, we live into this thing called the radical middle, which is that we believe that we're going to go with everything we have after God intellectually without checking our emotions at the door. And we're going we're gonna to go after everything. Um, sorry, we're going to go after everything intellectually without checking our emotions at the door. We're going to go after God emotionally without checking our intellect at the door. And I love this radical middle. Amen? 
All right. The second, the second thing uh, is aesthetic adoration. We are fundamentally uh, and by design creatures that are drawn towards beauty and repelled by ugliness. It's like in our DNA. And our longing for the beautiful is meant to draw us into to deeper relationship with God who is himself beauty. King David, when he was writing these worship songs in Psalm chapter uh, in Psalm 27 verse 4 he says that the deepest desire of his heart is actually to gaze on the beauty of the Lord there's this book that I read back in my early 20s it's called The Evidential Power of Beauty by Thomas Dubay has anybody read that it's kind of an obscure book awesome yeah a few cool and um, he writes this the acute experience of great beauty readily evokes a nameless yearning for something more than earth can offer Elegant splendor reawakens our spirit's aching need for the infinite, a hunger for more than than matter can provide. You see, all of the longing that we carry in our souls for what is beautiful, and every time we see something that is incredibly beautiful, whether it's a sunset or we eat a really good meal or we listen to a, a profound piece of music or something like that, it awakens something on the inside of us. And that God actually put that thing in there, and he's saying it's meant to draw you to me, the consummate beauty of the, of, of the universe. In creating us for a, with a longing for beauty, God is creating in us a longing for himself. And so enjoying God, it comes through, through experiencing beauty in the world. We can experience the delight of God by delighting in music, or in looking at the beauty of creation, or in poetry, in art, in a good film, in food and drink, in laughter. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That in everything we do, we can experience this this wonder, this enjoyment of God. The third thing is emotional exhilaration. We were created as emotional creatures, and our emotions are meant to lead us to full enjoyment of God. In the same way that we don't check our brains at the door when we come to church, we also don't suppress emotion in God's presence. God is not merely a truth to ascend to or a list of rules to follow. He is a relational being that we engage with using every part of ourselves. God is worthy of your feelings. And so we express our joy our zeal, our love, our passion, our gratitude, and our hope to him. We bring him our anger, our grief, our fear, and our disappointment. He bears our wounds, our trauma, our sadness, and our betrayal. In God's presence, we do not just sit there passively. No, we dance, we shout, we cry, we laugh, we moan, and we rest. To shut our emotions off in God's presence is to limit ourselves enjoying him. And so oftentimes when we have these encounter worship nights, we're going to have one in a couple of weeks coming up, which I want to give a plug for real quick. If you are a parent, this is the one night of the month you get to worship God with no kids. So come and worship. It's great. Um, At these encounter worship nights, we often see people who are surprised by emotional responses that come out of them in God's presence. Like things that are deeply buried suddenly surface And so what we do is we we intentionally make space for this in those services. We're not trying to manufacture an emotional experience. 
But we are learning to yield to the Spirit's leadership to bring emotional breakthrough. And that often in that emotional breakthrough, we are freed up to experience him and to enjoy him at a greater measure. See, as we learn to enjoy God, we are learning to actually enjoy God. Which brings us to number four, volitional dedication. Delighting in the Lord means engaging our wills and the choices that we make. Doing the things that God commands us to do and staying away from the things that he prohibits us from doing, this actually leads us into greater enjoyment and delight. When we obey God, we are declaring in faith that God's ways really do lead us into a fuller and more joyful life. And on the flip side, disobedience, it dulls and anesthetizes our, our, our hearts to God's presence. Sin drains our spiritual energy. It's like a toxin in our souls that withers away our spiritual capacity. But willful, volitional obedience, it energizes the soul. It gives us life. It's like fresh, minty breath of God breathed into our lungs. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. He calls you his friend. This is the relationship with God that you were designed for. Many of us, if we are honest, know how to relate to God in lots of different ways, but don't know how to relate to him as a friend. You see, the Bible describes our relationship with God in so many ways. It talks about how God is a father and we are his children. The Bible says that God is a shepherd and that we are his sheep, that he is a master and that we are his servants, that he is a bridegroom and that we are his bride, that when we are helpless, he is our rescuer. When we're in bondage, he is, on our, he is our redeemer. When our feet are in a miry clay, he plucks us up and puts us on the rock. All of these really beautiful images for who God is. But here in John 15, Jesus says he is our friend. More than that, he calls us his friend. He's not just saying, I'm going to be a friend to you. He's saying, I want you to be my friend. I want to experience friendship from you too. Jesus desires friendship with you. He wants to share his heart with you and for you to share yours with him. He beckons us to spend time with him, not as a devotional practice that we do like we eat, like drinking a, a protein shake or working out or something like that. No, he wants, he wants more from us than that. He wants more from us than just doing the list of intercessory prayer at a prayer meeting. He calls us to spend our day walking with him. Jesus is inviting us to leave behind a life that is driven by the should and into a relationship of delight and joy in friendship with him. God has created us to enjoy him, to delight in his good gifts, to study his attributes, to emotionally engage in our relationship with him. And as we learn to experience or to enjoy God, we will experience deeper friendship and relationship with him. We will experience the fruit of a life of abiding. Amen? Amen.